of goes, <laughs> Thanks, Jim. <laughs> this morning, we are looking again at another passage in Luke for our Lifestyle of Jesus sermon series. Uh, we're looking at Luke 12, so if you brought a Bible with you or if you want to grab one of the Pew Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 12. We are in week nine now. Next week, we are going to be taking a break from it as Pastor Curtis opens up God's Word with us talking about mission. And then we'll return to the series for a few more weeks and then have a, have a, a few guest speakers for the summer. So we're looking again at how Jesus lived his life and what that would mean for us who seek to follow after him. And it's the first time that in a sermon series where I've actually tried to avoid the red letters of Jesus' words because I'm trying to look at what he did. But this morning, actually, we are actually going to look at something that Jesus said. We're going to look at a parable because the parable, how he, how he gave this parable, the specific teaching he gave, points to the way that he lived. In other words, what he said to people, how he instructed people, was how he, in fact, lived his own life. So it is helpful to look at his teachings. As Peterson put it, to follow Jesus means picking up rhythms and ways of doing things that are often unsaid, but always derivative from Jesus, formed by the influence of Jesus. As disciples of Jesus, we are seeking to be formed by the influence of Jesus, to look like him to behave as he did, to love as he did, to live as he did. And much of his teachings encourage a way of living, which we'll look at today, that is built on the assumption of simplicity. A simple life is what we see Jesus living pretty clearly in all four of our gospel accounts. Jesus never seemed to be in a rush. He never seemed to overfill his schedule. He always had time for spontaneous visits and distractions. He lived within boundaries and margins. He was completely running on his father's agenda. Not only that, but he also traveled light. He depended on other people's hospitality. He never had a consistent home. He was content with the bare necessities. And as we saw last week, he encouraged his disciples to live the same. So although there are no distinct passages that say exactly the words, Jesus lived a simple life, knowing what we know about Jesus and reading this parable that we're going to read in a few moments here speaks to that, speaks to a distinctly simple lifestyle. Why does this matter for us? Well, because when Jesus calls us to follow him and to live as he lives, he's pointing us to what life looks like when we live in him alone where we don't find our treasure or our joy in anything else other than him. Because when our lives become overly complicated, which they often do, it's very easy to replace Jesus or sort of sideline him for something else. And that actually becomes idolatry. And Jesus is trying to tell us that we actually don't need more stuff or more things to do. We simply need more of him. And if we want to follow him, our lives need to be centered around him in every capacity. So again, we're looking at Luke chapter 12, and we're going to start at verse 13 and go to verse 21. Luke chapter 12, verses 13 to 21. Luke writes this. Someone in the crowd said to him, Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And then he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. 
Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be for whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So earlier in the COVID season, I found myself watching a Netflix show, as many people did. Uh, I'm not usually a binge watcher, but this, this show I binge watched. It was The Crown. I don't know if many of you have seen it. But it, it's the ongoing series about the life of the royal family in the UK. And there's this one episode where the whole world is watching the launching of the Apollo 11 uh, rocket on July 20th of 1969 and, and its momentous landing on the moon. And the show depicts Prince Philip being starstruck, absolutely starstruck by this event. His eyes are glued to the television. He's waking up at all hours of the night to keep up with the news. He's envious. He's so envious of the lives that these men are living. He's just, Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong have become his heroes, right? Which is fascinating because here's a man who's married to the Queen of England, living in Buckingham Palace. The whole world knows who this guy is. The world's at his feet. And yet he's finding fulfillment in watching the lives and the adventures of these other guys, whose lives seem more exciting than his. But see, Prince Philip, as the show depicts, has fallen into a bit of a depression of his own existence. He's lost interest in his own life. In his own life. He's feeling a bit worthless compared to what these other men are doing, what these great men have just accomplished, and, and the differences that they've made for humanity and progress and science. So, of course, he's absolutely ecstatic when he finds out that these men, these astronauts, are going to be coming to Buckingham Palace. He's just thrilled, and so he's, he's eager to ask all the questions, right? He's, he wants to hear about everything, and so the, the show shows them, they, they sit down, and, and he's sitting in his chair, and he's eagerly, like, leaning forward, waiting to hear all this beautiful knowledge coming from these men. And these three guys are sitting there, absolutely bedazzled by Buckingham Palace and the fact that they're sitting across from Prince Philip and looking at him like he's still on TV. It's, it's like he's not actually real and he's trying to have a conversation with them and they sort of, you know, they, they're depicted as somewhat immature. Um, but they're not even able to answer any of his questions because all they want to do is ask him questions. And so he leaves that meeting, of course, feeling quite disillusioned and disappointed. This was not at all what he had expected of his heroes, of people that he admired so much and had done such amazing things, who had just made history. The prince then, of course, ends up, uh, oh, like I said, feeling disappointed and disillusioned, and he goes, he finds safe space with a group of clergymen who have been meeting on a weekly basis to talk about their disappointments and discouragements and woes of ministry. And it's a, a group that he formerly looked at as sort of weak and, and lacking, you know, progress and masculinity. Like, stop worrying about your problems. Do something about it, right? He ends up being able to, to sit with these guys and share his, his woes and his frustrations. And the point, though, there is that here's a man who had all the riches of the world at his feet, and yet it still wasn't enough. There was an emptiness in his own life, which he had avoided to address because he was too busy seeking to live vicariously through others. 
Because the reality is, you know, when, when our heroes fail our expectations, when the people that, whose lives we're living vicariously through fail our expectations, when human progress isn't enough to satisfy us, when we still don't have enough, what's left? See, we humans have this ongoing tendency to always be searching for something more, something better. Our lives just aren't exciting enough, so we need to live vicariously through someone else, or we need to look for something else to make ourselves feel happier. We end up functioning actually more like hedonists than Christians, you know, these people that are always trying to just be happy all the time because the pursuit of pleasure is the most important thing in life. But we've neglected to realize that this pursuit of more and more and more just leaves us actually feeling empty and actually more anxious. Why? Because it's never enough. It's never enough. There's no end to it. There's always something that dissatisfies us. There's always something that just isn't quite enough. As N.T. Wright has put it, the modern Western world is built on anxiety. You see it on the faces of people hurrying to work as they travel home, tired without having solved life's problems. The faces are weary, puzzled, living with the unanswerable question as to what it all means. The world thrives on people setting higher and higher goals for themselves and each other so that they can worry all day and all year about whether they will reach them. If they do, they'll set new ones. If they don't, they'll feel they failed. Was this really how we were supposed to live? Now, don't hear me wrong. Goals and pursuits and material possessions are not bad. God has made a beautiful world, and we are called to enjoy these things. But when there are too many things vying for our attention, we train ourselves into thinking that we should succeed so that we can attain these things. We deserve all these things, and as a result, we can't actually live without them because they demonstrate how we've achieved them. They demonstrate how much success we've actually gained. But according to Jesus, all these things, we can't actually and truly live with them. Be aware, he said, of all kinds of greed, of grasping and holding tightly onto things, of, of hoarding, of packing away things for ourselves, of controlling and acquiring possessions that mean nothing at the end of the day. Why? Because verse 15, life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Life does not consist, true life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. It may feel like this is where life is found, but that's a lie. According to Jesus, that is a lie. Life does not consist in this. And he goes on now to explain why. So someone in the crowd comes up to Jesus and wants him to settle an inheritance dispute. And this, this wasn't an uncommon thing to do. Oftentimes, you, you see this in the Old Testament, right? When people come to Moses asking for him to settle disputes, people would go to their rabbis and ask them to settle financial disputes, property disputes, whatever. These were the religious authorities, but they were also in some ways their civil authorities. Jesus, though, is not your regular rabbi. Jesus will not get in a dispute about money. And if this guy had been listening to Jesus and really following Jesus, he should have known better. Because think about all the times that Jesus speaks about possessions and money. 
In the Gospel of Luke alone, Jesus tells the crowd of disciples not to worry about their lives, what they'll wear, what they'll eat, what they'll drink, because life is more than food and clothing. He says back in chapter 9 that foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man himself has no place to lay his head. He didn't have a home, let alone an inheritance. He tells them to sell their possessions and give to the poor. Provide purpose for yourself, in other words, that won't give out, that won't wear out. A treasure in heaven that's never going to fail. Because where your treasure is, there your heart is also. In chapter 11, he scowls at the Pharisees for living extravagantly and neglecting the poor, for always wanting the fancy clothing and the best seats. He tells the crowd that those who do not give up everything cannot be his disciples. So, when this man then comes up to Jesus and wants him to help get him more money, you can imagine the look on Jesus' face. And not only that, he takes the opportunity then to share a different way. He shares a parable with them. A man yields an abundant harvest, right? An abundant harvest, so much abundance, a phenomenal year of growth and harvest. But listen to this parable again. And notice all the times that the words I, me, and my show up. Starting at verse 16, the ground of a certain rich man, so notice he's already wealthy, right? He's already wealthy. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grains. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Complete and utter selfishness. Right? This man's whole attitude is the complete reversal of Jesus' teachings about self-denying discipleship. Instead of denying himself, this man in the parable is, having, is living in a sort of aggressive self-indulgence. This is mine. The already rich man yields an abundant harvest, and what's his immediate response? I'm, I'm going to keep it. It's mine. I deserve it. I earned it. I've been blessed by it. I, I get to keep it. Verse 17, he had no place to put his crops. So what's the natural human response? I should build bigger barns. Man, I have so much stuff. What am I going to do? I should build a bigger house. Or I should buy one of those many storage units that are constantly being built all around everywhere in the Fraser Valley. Because I have so much stuff, I don't even have a house big enough to store it all, so I need to pay somebody else to hold all my stuff. Or, wow, I got such a wicked tax return this year, what am I going to do with my thousands of dollars? I'm going to put it into my RRSP so that I can retire early and I can eat, drink, and be merry. So my money can just stay there, just in case I need it in the future. This, right? This is what we do. And to be clear, Jesus isn't worried about how much the wealthy man already has. Jesus is concerned with the attitude by which he's living his life. The parable is in direct response to the man who comes up to him and wants 
the inheritance. Now, it's not to say, again, in that situation that Jesus doesn't care about proper justice and fairness. It's to say that Jesus' purpose, and our purpose as his followers, is to bring men and women to God, not to indulge them further in possessions and property and money. Because, says Jesus, an abundance of possessions will actually turn you away from God. Which is why in verse 20, God himself now shows up in the parable and says, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you, then who will get what you have prepared all for yourself? Who's going to get it? Who benefits from all the stuff and the money and the possessions that you've hoarded for yourself? Sure, nowadays we can write it in the will, like, yes, this will go to my family, and this will go to that person, and this will go to that charity. But that implies that we're only going to be charitable when we're dead. And according to this passage, our lives aren't ours to determine how long we stick around. No one, says Leon Morris, has the assurance that he or she will live the years they desire. Why? Because life is a gift, not an assumption. Life is a gift, not an assumption. We have to be so careful about this. We, that we don't assume some sort of glorious future and hoard all the opportunities to ourselves while other people live day to day. Don't get me wrong. Again, don't hear me wrong. Planning for the future is not bad. But when our whole life is surrounded or, or, or is all about planning for our glorious futures while other people literally don't know what they're going to eat that night, that's not the way we're supposed to live. Be rich toward God, says Jesus, because it is he who holds your life. Verse 21, this is how it will be for whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. Be rich toward God. How then? How do we follow in Jesus' way? How do we do this and be rich toward God? The answer I want to argue this morning, as I mentioned earlier, based on Jesus' own life, is living in simplicity. I am almost convinced that there is no better way to witness to contentment in Christ, to life in Him, than to live minimally, and delight in simplicity, to be a people who do and who have less. I say that for a few reasons. First, because in this culture, it speaks volumes. We live in a society that is entirely built on consumerism, on getting more and more and more, on throwing this away and gaining this instead in its place, of buying more things to keep the steam engine running, where we're bombarded by advertisements telling us we don't have enough. You know, your washing machine isn't actually as energy efficient as this one is. That car you bought 10 years ago isn't as family safe as this one is. You should probably get a new one. We get caught up in the ongoing cycle of more. Something else is always better than what we currently have. We cave into them to the temptation over and over and over to always get the next best thing, to impulse buy whatever we feel like we need in the moment. And rather than living in simplicity, we, we actually continue to make our lives more and more complex. And we do this not just with things and stuff, but also with obligations. 
Henry Nouwen identified our situation so well. He wrote that the more he lived and watched others live, the more he saw two key descriptions of our situation, filled and unfilled. He writes that our lives are filled, filled with things to do, people to meet, projects to finish, letters to write, calls to make, appointments to keep. Our lives, he said, often seem like overpacked suitcases bursting at the seams. In fact, we are almost always aware of being behind schedule. There is a nagging sense that there are unfinished tasks, unfulfilled promises, unrealized proposals. There's always something else that we should have remembered, done, or said. There are always people we did not speak to, write to, or visit. Thus, although we are very busy, we also have a lingering feeling of never really fulfilling our obligations. I'm looking at Leo's face right now. <laughs> for me, and perhaps for many of you, I read this and ached at how grossly accurate it was. Really. This is then paired, of course, with our lives feeling strangely unfilled. Beneath all the worrying and the constant fears of, of always forgetting something or never living up to expectations, we end up feeling a deep sense of unfulfillment. Because we wonder, is this what it's really supposed to be like? The more we do, the more we're pulled in all sorts of different directions. And the more fragmented we are, the more we feel like we're not doing enough. So you know what we end up doing sometimes? We end up, just buy, we end up buying more things and accumulating so that at least it looks like we're doing enough and we're being good enough and we've achieved things, but at the end of the day, it's still never enough. It never ends. Why? Because as G.K. Chesterton once said, there's two ways to get enough. One is to just continue accumulating more and more. The other is to desire less. As followers of Jesus, we must seek to desire less. Because secondly, when we seek to sort of declutter our lives, not just from stuff, but also from obligations, we hear the still small voice of simplicity telling us that the kingdom of heaven is closer to home than we think. And we recognize that our, although there's many things we want to do or feel like we should do, we don't really have or need to do most of it. We really don't have to. There's a Celtic prayer poem that has always stuck with me, and it goes like this. If you want to live life free, take your time. Go slowly. Do few things, but do them well. Simple joys are holy. Simple joys are holy. What's holy? What's holiness? God. Simple joys are like God. Can you not just see Jesus being someone who delights in simple joys? who laughs at every one of the disciples' terrible jokes, who takes every opportunity he can to bring a child up on his knee, who everywhere he goes, he sees a, a flower, he sees a smile, he sees his Father's world in abundance and appreciates it. He can only do that because he lived in such a way that allowed for it. That, is in, that was intentional about looking everywhere for holy moments of his Father's goodness in the lives of the people around him. 
finding God in simple joys. We always try to make our lives so complicated. And yet most of our life really isn't spent doing world-changing things. Most of our life is spent doing pretty ordinary things. And that's good. Find God in the ordinary things. That's why Mother Teresa once said, do little things with great love. It's the motto she lived by. Two little things with great love. We must learn to do simple things with great joy to the glory of God. Because the reality is that God doesn't look at how much we're doing. He looks at the love with which we're doing it. Which means then that there is more life in delight, life and delight to be found in doing few things with great love rather than many things with fragmented love. Our greatest enemy, as, as Jesus pointed out multiple times, is trying to grasp on to many things and, and to give into that incessant nagging feeling of always needing and wanting more and more and more. And having been to the places around the world, having been to certain places around the world and met people who have very little and yet are ridiculously content and generous with what they have, I am convinced that for those of us who live here in affluent North America, following Jesus' lifestyle as simplicity is the way to get off this teeter-totter of happy and, hun and unhappy based on a false, false gospel that looks more like the American dream than it does Jesus. Because thirdly, living in simplicity demonstrates a contentment in Christ that witnesses to the impact of his grace on our lives. When Jesus is our greatest treasure, all the other stuff ceases to have a hold on us. We live in greater simplicity, we live more generously, and we witness in our lives to how completely and fully we have been fulfilled by the grace of God. Because it's all that matters to us. It doesn't matter how much or how little I have. What matters is the grace that I've received from God. And when I live simply and when I live generously, which we'll talk about more in a couple weeks, I witness to that grace and the completeness of that grace in my life. Heaven help us if we neglect to be Jesus in our city and to our neighbors because we're too busy building bigger barns. We don't need to experience more or have more to be fulfilled. Greater and deeper joy actually is found in doing less. Because in the way that Jesus lived, he showed us that our lives are more than riches and experiences and, and opportunities and accomplishments. Those things actually are empty apart from him. The whole gospel message, in fact, is built on the understanding that the great God of the universe, the one who holds all things together and in whom everything exists, the fullness of the world exists in him, he emptied himself in death so that the ones who would follow after him could live. He unfilled himself so that we could be filled not by stuff and things and obligations, but by him. 
For what purpose? So that we could look like him. So that we could be filled by him to show that the simplicity of his grace is all that we need. May it be enough. In whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, may Jesus always be enough. Amen. Let's pray. Living God, Lord Jesus, uh, sometimes your words are hard for us. Sometimes we don't always know how to receive them. I pray now, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would do a work in each one of us, that we would be able to apply your words to our lives. Each in our own particular way, Lord, may we sense the call to follow you with greater tenacity, with greater joy, with greater love. May all the other things in our lives, Lord, that seek to clutter and seek to fill, fall by the wayside. May they not have a hold on us. We pray, Lord, that you would enable us to be released from that hold so that we can more tightly cling to you, our great treasure. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.